afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the 46th of the COVID calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. These calls are held every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern time. My name is Scott Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at Drexel University in Philadelphia. Today, we have a discussion about communications infrastructure, security, and COVID-19 with Ryan Ellis and Megan Finn. We are streaming on YouTube Live. You can also keep up with COVID calls via Twitter, at US of Disaster. You can also hear the COVID calls recorded as podcasts. Just go to soundcloud.com and connect to the COVID calls podcast. Please do help spread the word and send suggestions for guests, future topics. Please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. On Tuesday, I will speak with New York Times contributing writer Maggie Jones. You may have seen her piece in the New York Times Magazine this weekend under the title, How Do You Maintain Dignity for the Dead in a Pandemic? Absolutely read this piece and please do join me tomorrow at five o'clock when I talk to Maggie Jones about that article. As of today, there are 4,775,000 confirmed cases of COVID-19 globally, according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. That is up from 4,516,360 cases Friday. 1,500,753 of those are in the United States, up from 1,432,045 reported on Friday. There are now a total of 90,312 deaths from COVID-19 reported in the United States, up from 86,851 deaths reported as of Friday. As a way to bring humanity to these numbers, I've been reading a life story every day and I'd like to continue that now. The title of this obituary is, I lost two sisters and my mom in two weeks, West Seattle man grieves deaths of three family members from coronavirus. Seattle Times, May 3rd. You wonder how Raymond Lee is standing, how he got out of bed that morning, how he is stringing sentences together and remembering dates and places, meals he ate and what people told him. Lee is carrying with him unimaginable grief. Last month, in a span of just 13 days, he and his brother William lost their sister, Regina Lim Lee, 58, their mother, Susie Chin Lee, 82, and their other sister, Willa Lee, 60, to the novel coronavirus. Three beloved women gone in less than two weeks. This, while Raymond Lee is mourning the death of his 21-year-old daughter, Tiana, two years ago to depression. I work, Lee said recently, when asked how he was coping. I work to keep my mind off the death of my daughter and the death of my mom and sisters, he said. I keep my mind busy. If I didn't, it would be too difficult. You work to the point of exhaustion, he continued, standing in the driveway of his West Seattle home. I sit down and fall asleep. If you don't, you start to think. I can't dwell on it now, there's too much pain. It started when Regina Lee, who worked in a, the call center for Costco travel, picked up a cough and fever. Raymond Lee, a building engineer for Hyatt, didn't know Regina was sick when, on March 16th, his sister Willa, a trainer at a biomedical company, called with stunning news. Gina just passed away, she told him. Regina had been in the bathroom of the Everett home the three women shared when she collapsed. Paramedics arrived and were unable to revive her. While the paramedics were tending to her sister, Willa Lee told them about her own 101 degree fever. They told her to go to the doctor. 
Willa's doctor at the Poly Clinic in Seattle sent her to the hospital. She went to nearby Swedish Medical Center where she was admitted to the intensive care unit. She texted Raymond Lee to tell him where she was and to not go to the house in Everett, that everything was contaminated. That was the last time I ever talked to her, he said. Lee had been in touch with his mother, Susie, but one day she stopped answering her phone. He drove to the Everett house, but she wouldn't answer the door. He went inside and found his mother in an upstairs closet. She said she was in so much pain she couldn't get up. He took her to Providence Regional Medical Center in Everett where she died on March 27th. Willa Lee died two days later on March 29th, never knowing that her mother was gone. Through all this, Raymond Lee was never allowed into a hospital room, not permitted to comfort his mother or sisters or say goodbye. It was that first shocking phone call and then more and more ending with the last call from one of Willa's nurses saying she was gone. When sister Regina died, Lee and his family were only able to sit in their car inside the gates of Lakeview Cemetery and watch the hearse drive by. The funeral director came back with a photo of her coffin and then the sod under which she was buried. When it came to burying their mother and other sister, some leniency allowed for a 15 minute gathering in the cemetery for immediate family only. What can we do? Lee asked about Regina's burial. There is no choice in the matter. All you can do is watch the hearse go back there. The lockdown was so strict that it was all we had. Lee spoke of how the kids and the family were born one after the other, William, Raymond, Willa, and Regina, all about a year apart. Their father, Albert, who died of lung cancer, worked as a server at a restaurant. Their mother was housekeeper. We drove her crazy, the four of us, Raymond Lee said. We didn't have cell phones. We just got on our bikes and rode around Beacon Hill. Two years ago, after the loss of their daughter, Lee and his wife built a memorial garden in their backyard. He may do something like that for his mother and sisters. His uncle is a Buddhist monk in Malaysia and plans to install a plaque bearing their names. A lot of people think this coronavirus is nothing, he said. I say, hey, you need to be careful because this is real. I lost two sisters and my mom in two weeks. today. The first guest is Ryan Ellis. Ryan Ellis is an assistant professor of communication studies at Northeastern University. Ryan's research and teaching focuses on topics related to communication law and policy, infrastructure politics, and cybersecurity. He is the author of Letters, Power Lines, and Other Dangerous Things, Politics of Infrastructure Security, which came out just this spring with MIT Press. And he's also the editor with Vivek Mohan of Rewired Cybersecurity Governance, came out with Wiley in 2019. My second guest is Megan Finn. Megan is an assistant professor at the University of Washington Information School. She published Documenting Aftermath, Information Infrastructures in the Wake of Disasters in 2018 with MIT Press. This book is about post-earthquake communication practices. Her newer projects examine ethical research practices in the field of computer security and investigates 
the implications of novel information policies on a transnational scale. Ryan and Megan, thank you for making time to come on COVID calls today. Thank you, pleasure. I'd like to remind people that you can get questions in a number of different ways. You can, if you're watching on YouTube Live, you can get the questions in there using the YouTube Live chat function. You can also email them to me directly. There are a couple of people who like to do that. You can send those to me at sgk23 at drexel.edu. And you can put the questions up on Twitter. Just be sure to tag me at US of Disaster. So uh, Ryan and Megan, I've been starting these um, calls by asking people where they're calling from and how things are there. So uh, Megan, can I start with you? Where are you calling from and, and how's it going there? Sure. Um, hi, I'm in Seattle, Washington. Um, Washington State, as most people know, was the first place in the U.S. where coronavirus became really visible. Um, so I've been home since, working from home since early March. Um, Seattle Times reported that we recently crossed an unthr unfortunate threshold. We have um, over a thousand people uh, a thousand reported, I should say, um, COVID-19 uh, deaths. But overall, the number of new cases reported in Washington state have been uh, decreasing since the beginning of April. Um, I think I just checked, we had 125 new cases reported yesterday. Um, and today we have a new mask requirement that's going into effect where people are required to wear masks where social distancing isn't possible. So things are slowly, very slowly um, starting to reopen. When did University of Washington close down? Um, I believe the first day of online instruction was March 11th, which was the last mm -hmm. week of winter quarter. Um, I and a number of other people started doing classes online the week before. Mm -hmm. um, as we were getting a lot of emails from concerned students who you know, didn't want to pile into large lecture halls and whatnot, um, yeah. Right, so you were about two weeks faster at, for obvious reasons there than, than everywhere else. I think Drexel was going officially till March 16th. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we were, we were a little bit earlier, I think. And I think that's been lucky to a certain degree for Washington State that we had all that um, the sort of horrible early cases in the um, nursing facility in Kirkland, Washington, which is right outside of Seattle. Right. Yeah. Ryan, same question to you. Uh, where are you calling in from and how are things going there? I'm calling in from my basement, as you probably can guess. Um, <laughs> Waltham, Massachusetts, just outside of Boston. I am documenting yeah. American basements in, at such an incredible <laughs> pace right now. You have no idea. It's remarkable. Yeah, you can see yeah, the you know, doc, they, doc work behind me. <laughs> okay, so you're. I'm sorry, I cut you off. You're in. You're in Boston. Yeah, you're in Boston, just outside of Boston. Yeah, things are things are okay here. You know, um, managing uh, work life balance is tricky for everybody, but you know, knock on wood, I think yeah. we're very fortunate here. We're healthy at home and doing okay. Uh, the city of Boston, just like uh, Megan was mentioning, uh, in Seattle as well as New York, has been hit pretty hard by this. Um, things seem to be getting, you know, if not uh, maybe a little bit better, certainly plateauing. The governor announced today some phase one reopening of select businesses and other organizations, but a fairly modest, at least from my quick scan of the news this afternoon, fairly modest reopening. Uh, people are still really in the middle of things here. So it's, you know, tough as it is for everyone, certainly. Well, I 
been really excited to talk to both of you. And uh, judging by the traffic on Twitter today, a lot of other people are tuning in as well and excited to, excited to hear from you. And I wanted to turn to you first, Ryan, uh, your book, great title, Letters, Power Lines, and Other Dangerous Things, The Politics of Infrastructure. So I'm actually really, really eager to learn more about the Postal Service right now. It's not a sentence I expected to be saying, uh, but I mean it <laughs> earnestly because yeah. uh, it's really confusing. And I wonder if you could sort of walk us through a little bit here. What is happening with the U.S. Postal Service right now? And has the Postal Service ever managed anything like this before? I mean, certainly keeps going through disaster, but a disaster of this scale? Yeah, so I'm, there's one thing I love to do is talk about the Postal Service. So I'm happy to chat about it, certainly. So they're facing a real economic and political crisis as well as a health crisis. Uh, postal workers, I think the last count I saw was about 60 postal workers have died from COVID. Uh, over, I think close to 2000 have been confirmed cases as well. So, you know, as many of us are able to stay home, postal workers are still going out there and delivering the mail. Uh, but on top of that health crisis, which is real and pressing and frightening for all parties involved, they also have an enormous economic and political crisis on their hands. They're looking at losing tens of billions of dollars this year. Uh, it looks like first class mail is going to drop maybe by 30% or more, which is a key source of their revenue. And it's an open question if they will be bailed out or not. Uh, the most recent large stimulus package gave them a $10 billion loan with significant strings that would appear attached, uh, which would give the Treasury Department significant control and oversight over the Postal uh, Service if they take the money, which they haven't exactly done just yet, as I understand it. So what the post office is going to look like coming out of this is very much an open and real live question. Um, for postal workers, they're dealing not only with a frightening situation, worrying about their health, but also wondering what their jobs are going to look like in two or three months if their jobs will even be there. So, um, you know, it's a, a real multifaceted crisis. And Scott, to your second point, have they ever dealt with something like this? Similar things, certainly, but not to this extent and not sort of the health and economic crisis overlaid over one another. So uh, back in 2001, there was the anthrax attacks where about 20 postal workers died. Um, that was a significant health challenge for them, managing, testing, and also restoring faith in the fact that mail was safe. But also, I, you know, go back much earlier, people have been worried about catching diseases through the mail for a very, very, very long time. So back certainly in the 19th century and earlier, uh, people were afraid that yellow fever traveled through the mail and they established, you know, very baroque and complicated disinfection practices. People both desired and needed the mail just like now, but also people were frightened of it. And so that led to a lot of interesting uh, innovations and challenges and public panics around mail. So they've dealt with things that look similar, maybe not to this scale. And I would say not the health and economic crisis overlaid over one another at the same time, certainly. Just quickly on that anthrax point, because I certainly remember that time, but I wasn't paying as close of attention to how the Postal Service managed that. They must have had to develop a pretty quick and, and on the spot disaster communications plan in that moment. Or maybe they already had something ready to go, but the, their capacity to, to convince people that the thing they relied upon every day at three o'clock to go to that mailbox was still safe, even though what was coming on the news was terrifying. Did they manage that well? Well, yeah, I mean, I remember it very, very clearly as well. Um, so 
I mean, one of the first things they did is they tried to tell people there is no risk of cross-contamination. So in other words, if you weren't set a letter packed with anthrax, you're safe. But very quickly, it turned out that automated uh, postal machines that are housed in sorting and distribution centers actually did facilitate cross-contamination. And it turned out spores of anthrax could come from these very well-sealed envelopes and travel across the system. So they sent out, if um, anybody out there remembers, they sent a postcard essentially to every single address in the United States with sort of, here's what to look for, um, you know, look for misspellings, no return address, how to know if your mail is suspicious. But quickly, that turned out to be not that helpful at all because you couldn't see it. Right? You can't see little spores of anthrax from cross-contamination. And it would have none of the telltale signs of being a malicious letter, misspelling or no return address, things that are actually pretty common. So they were you know, back on their heels. People had worried about anthrax being sent through the mail. Um, during the 90s, over and over again, people would send uh, essentially hoax letters to um, you know, women's health clinics and the like that. Um, those were often hoaxes, terrifying hoaxes, but hoaxes. But in 2001, they were really scrambling. They didn't have a good plan. And the nature of the attack confounded their expectations in a real way. Postal workers, as I kind of mentioned before, dealt with the brunt of it. They were the ones working in facilities that were unsafe. They were the ones, many of them, who died. Uh, so it was a real challenge at the time. And the politics of how it all sorted out is a really interesting, I think, case study as well. So I don't think anybody would deny then that um, postal workers and delivery workers more generally are essential workers at this time. Um, are they, do they have protections? Help us understand a little bit the labor situation of this essential labor force. I've seen, even since we've started talking, um, at least two or three either US Postal Service trucks or other delivery trucks going down my street. I mean, the volume is, is immense for obvious reasons. Am, should I assume that they have um, the kinds of protections that we would want essential workers to have? Well, it's a mixed bag. I mean, they certainly are essential. Um, they were essential before uh, March and they're gonna be essential when, knock on wood, this ever ends. You know, for many folks, they are a lifeline for rural communities. Uh, for a lot of people, they deliver checks that are desperately needed. They deliver over a billion shipments of medicine, including a lot of VA patients. So they, they, they were important before this. I think for the general public, like you just mentioned, their importance now has been amplified or become more visible. The question of do they have the protections they might need is a more tricky one. So, you know, there's almost a little over half a million people who work at the post office, but 20% of them are non-career temporary employees who don't have the same protections as union members um, or as other full-time employees. So when you see discussions about contingent workers and gig workers thinking about, um, you know, Instacart shoppers and folks like that, there's a significant portion of the postal workforce that also resembles those type of workers. They are absolutely essential to the ongoing provision of the service, but many of them are in precarious economic positions and they don't have the same benefits and rights and protections that other workers might have. And the postal service union is What's their attitude right now? I mean, I know we're in the middle of things, but um, are they finding some resilience in this time? Are they finding yeah. some solidarity? I think that's right. Both postal management and the unions have tried to do right by the workers, including I'd say even the temporary workers, certainly. Um, you know, they're very worried about the dual nature of the crisis. The long-term viability of the postal service is front of mind, as well as the health of their workers. They were, I think, incredibly dismayed to see that um, the larger debt forgiveness and bailout that was proposed but not enacted for the Postal Service was spiked. And the politics of it are you know, front and center. So they're trying to thread a difficult needle here, protecting their workers, 
while also trying to secure real economic relief that they need to put this on a sustainable footing going forward um, to save the service. And so, you know, it's a, it's a very difficult balancing act for both management and the labor unions. But, you know, looking at what APWU and the National Association of Letter Carriers are doing, I mean, they're certainly fighting the good fight. And I think management even is trying to do the right thing, but they're in a very difficult position all around. So, Megan, let me come to you and um, with a lot of questions, things to talk to you about, but I want to sort of start with a general question, which is, you know, you're, you're a historian who looks at the way that information infrastructures perform in, during, and after disaster. And I wonder if you could just take us a little bit into the way you think about um, the problem of infrastructure in disaster and you know, particularly communications Who's tending the infrastructures? Why do they matter? How does their status change through a disaster? Kind of situate us a little bit into this sort of problem set, because then we got to make some sense of how that's going to reflect on COVID-19. Yeah, so I guess I, um, you know, borrowing, Brian and I both borrow a lot from um, STS and scholars and historians to think about information infrastructure as a really sort of processual thing, something that continually needs to be produced through um, the laborers that Ryan was talking about, but also, you know, of course, through material technologies, um, through major institutions and organizations who manage these workers and these technologies through the standards that enable these infrastructures to interoperate with each other um, fairly seamlessly from, from our perspectives. Um, and so I've, you know, mostly looked at earthquakes and thought a lot about what happens when things break um, and literally uh, like physical things break. Um, and that's actually led me to really spend a lot of time focusing on labor because what it turns out is oftentimes in a lot of the cases that I've looked at, when the physical infrastructure breaks, the organizing practices, the way that people work, um, actually really endures and people are able to do kind of cool workarounds, interesting workarounds um, when they have the resources to in order to continue this sort of process of producing infrastructure. Um, but of course, COVID's really interestingly different, right? Because it's not like an earthquake where there's a broken um, cable somewhere um, and people are trying to figure out how to you know, work around that broken cable. Um, our infrastructure is largely in place and sort of the utilization of different aspects of the infrastructure has drastically changed, right? Like road infrastructure is like really underutilized right now, whereas our internet infrastructure in homes is, um, you know, very much uh, probably at capacity. Um, so I, I'm thinking a lot about, you know, who are the people who are continuing to make these things run for us? And of course, thinking about historical cases of, of these types of infrastructure workers and, and what they're doing. Well, take us inside one of those. I know in your book, you look at a number of different cases across time and maybe uh, 1906 San Francisco is one that people know pretty well. Yeah, yeah. So 1906 earthquake is um, a pretty sort of parad paradigmatic uh, earthquake in the minds of a lot of certainly West Coast folks um, who live in, um, you know, seismically active areas. Um, and you know, it was this huge earthquake. It broke the water pipes going into San Francisco. So fire started after the earthquake that, that really burned a huge portion of the city to the ground. Um, and in the aftermath of that earthquake, there, you know, telegraphers really, um, you know, worked 
extraordinarily long hours. Um, they repaired the infrastructure. They sort of stayed at the keys. Um, one of the things I've thought a lot about when I think about information infrastructures during disasters is that disasters are these moments where there's a lot of uncertainty. And so what do people do? They, they want to know what's going on, right? They want to know if their loved ones are okay. They want to know what the status of the world is out, outside, right? So, um, so they're, they're really taxing information infrastructures quite heavily. And so in the case of 1906, these, these um, telegraphers are very much sort of bearing the brunt of that, that taxing of the telegraphy infrastructure. Everybody is trying to send telegrams um, saying, hey, I'm okay. And of course, businesses and newspapers who are sort of primary users of the telegraphic infrastructure at this point are, are very much um, needing to use it. And so these telegraphers are hailed as, um, as heroes. These infrastructure workers are really hailed as heroes. A lot like the discourse that we see today, um, talking about delivery workers, grocery store workers, nurses, um, that, that these workers are really heroes in, in sort of making things continue to run. Um, mm -hmm. and, and at the time, um, there, so right before the earthquake, there had been um, some large unionization efforts in the US and the Commercial Telegraphers Union um, had, had formed in, in 1903 and had a fairly large membership, was affiliated under the AFL. They were demanding higher wages and better working conditions. So after the earthquake, you know, these telegraphers who had been hailed as heroes about a year after the earthquake asked Western Union for um, a 25% temporary raise um, to deal with the immense cost of living in San Francisco at that time because so much housing had been destroyed. Um, and Western Union said no, and, and they began um, a strike. And mm -hmm. this strike was picked up when um, telegraphers from Los Angeles refused, the Angelino telegraphers refused to, to work with the San Francisco-based telegraphers. And then um, quickly after that, Chicago telegraphers refused to work with the SCAB Angelino telegraphers. And so in this nationwide strike starts within sort of two months of the San Francisco strike. And it lasts for 89 days. Um, it failed ultimately. The telegraph union had really, really deep pockets. The, tele the telegraphy union, uh, sorry, Western Union had really deep pockets and the telegraphy union was unable to sort of come up with a strike fund to support the telegraphers through this. It was pretty easy to train replacements and there was lots of experiments with automating machinery. But anyway, it's sort of, it's a very kind of sad ending to the story, um, but of course reminds you of, um, we've seen this huge increase in labor activity during the COVID crisis, particularly amongst essential workers, like Instacart employees, Ryan was talking about earlier, who are demanding appropriate PPE, um, asking for hazard pay um, and you know other protections while they're working during the crisis. So, um, so it's, it'll be, you know, it raises some really interesting long-term questions for us about how these workers who have suddenly been categorized as essential um, how they value their own work, how they're valued by the public, um, what labor activities we're going to see during the pandemic and afterwards, and what kind of demands they can make. Well, what's changed? I mean, this question for both of you, if, if, we're, if we're thinking about disasters historically as a moment where essential workers um, can begin, in some cases, to unionize or to exercise uh, rights within a union to become active, 
Um, what's changed between then and now? I mean, what are you expecting to see right now? We're going to see some continuity of that history, or have there been some some changes in the, in between that you wouldn't allow us to think to think that? Maybe Ryan, you want to take that first, and then come to you, Megan. Yeah, I mean, I'm skeptical. Uh, I'm not skeptical. I'm reluctant to make strong predictions. I think what the history shows is there's always opportunities for new forms of solidarity and organization and agitation. Certainly that was the case in 2001 for postal workers. And they're able to arrest what looked like real gains, but those gains eventually slipped through their fingers and were not long lasting. And in fact, the larger powers that be, large commercial mailers saw their power increase significantly after that moment, despite postal workers being, as they said at the time, on the front lines of the war on terror. So it's hard to, it's hard to draw a straight connection and say that these moments of destabilization are going to spin out in any one particular way. I mean, the thing I would emphasize, and I, I think Megan might agree, is that it's highly contingent, right? It takes workers and other supporting institutions to agitate for those changes and to make them durable. The disaster itself doesn't really compel much. It creates an opportunity, but how that opportunity is adopted and translated into bureaucratic practices and maybe secure gains is an ongoing open thing that we're not going to know in the next couple of days or couple of weeks or even a couple of months. It's going to be a longer term process. That's my sort of um, reticent or skeptical take. Megan, what do you think? I mean, I'm, I'm very interested in the sort of slipperiness around this category of essential workers and what kind of work it's doing for particular powerful entities and but also what kind of work it can do for these workers and you know again one of the sort of lessons of the infrastructure studies world is that often the kind of labor that produces infrastructure goes unnoticed until you know things go wrong or you know they get they become essential workers right and so I am excited to see uh, a group of people who who otherwise probably don't get a lot of attention get some more attention and and I, I guess I'm sort of hopeful based on that. Um, I also want to note, and I think Ryan, your book certainly shows this as well, that to the extent that labor, I mean, that the labor advances or, or um, organizing relies a lot on things that have been in place already before these crises come on. So while this increased attention from the public uh, might be happening, we should note that like a lot of this organizing had been, yeah. you know, their gig workers had been organizing for a while. And so um, this sort of opens up this moment um, for them where they can, where they do have more attention um, on them and, and they are, um, their important work is recognized as important. So, um, so I think, Maybe there is some space for hope, but yeah, generally the historical lessons, obviously the stories that we're both telling aren't particularly optimistic. Well, I think that's, it, it's also relevant for us, you know, when we think about disasters more, more generally, I think there's often an inclination to imagine that disasters create a new world. And um, historians are often the killjoys at that party because we, we show up with our bag full of continuities you know, which yeah. are, I think, really, really important to point to in this moment. But that doesn't mean we're, that disasters don't also produce politics and produce new context for politics, but they will in many cases be, as you're both describing, continuities um, of either laws or policies or affinities or, or union activities that were already in place. I want to remind people that I'm talking with Megan Finn and Ryan Ellis on 
COVID calls and you can get your questions into YouTube live chat or email me directly sgk23 at drexel.edu. I did already receive a question, which we'll get to in a minute. Um, I wanna stick though um, here, you, you said this a minute ago, Megan, um, one of the things you're excited about is sort of bringing into the light um, what are often sort of the more invisible aspects of, of infrastructure. Um, and I know that you and Ryan both share a really, um, I think a really robust sense of what infrastructure is, which is that it's, it's not just one, it's obviously not just a highway or it's not just a bridge. It's the full package of information that surrounds what that thing is, what keeps it up, all of the standards, and then all of the people that, that make that information and make those policies. And, and, and when we think of infrastructure that way, it's obvious how little we know about it, right? Because most yeah. people, you say, well, tell us about infrastructure you like, they'll tell you the name of two bridges that they love. And that's all they know, but they know the structure, but they don't know that sort of deeper sense of it. And, and if you don't have that, you don't have the, the conflicts or maybe some of the missing workers. So I wanna bring that context to where we are right now and think a little bit about some of the infrastructure workers, sort of information infrastructure workers right now that are out there, like let's say computer security professionals, more generally thinking about information technology and computer security. Um, are they essential workers right now too, Megan? Oh, I would, I would argue yes, um, with our, um, you know, with those, for those of us who are lucky to be lucky enough to be able to work from home, um, we're incredibly dependent on our um, broadband, on our internet infrastructure, and ensuring that that continues to function requires a lot of people, and one group of those people is certainly um, security professionals, um, who I know Ryan spends a lot of time uh, uh, looking at. Ryan, what are you? Yeah, I mean, I think. What are you seeing right now? Are they? I, I'm having a, a hard time even picturing because it's a profession that is so little understood, I think, or sort of little understood by me, let me say. Yeah. Um, it's hard for me to put a finger on them right now. I think one of the things that's going on now is, you know, so much of the backstage work of infrastructure is now really being foregrounded for folks who don't think about it that often. Right? So the things you maybe some people took for granted, whether it be uh, postal workers or the folks who are out there finding and fixing bugs in whatever your video conferencing software are, all of a sudden they seem to be really important. They're important before, but we just sort of black box them, didn't think about them, didn't focus on it, maybe as much as we should have. But now there's a new recognition about how important it is. In the world of uh, computer security research, which is an area that I do study, yeah, it's a real interesting question um, that I have is what model those sorts of workers are going to be organized around. Are they going to be in-house? Are they going to look like, you know, essentially uh, gig workers and elsewhere? So one thing I study a lot is sort of model of bug bounty programs, which are ways in which security researchers are paid for finding flaws. And there's certainly been a, a strong effort in the last couple of weeks to suggest that this is the way you should secure your services and promote it. And there's a lot to offer about it. There's lots of real risks and challenges and worries there too. So um, just as we're going back, looping back to our earlier conversation, how disasters produce all sorts of political uh, new manifestations and constellations that are in some ways unpredictable. You know, one of the key things I'm interested in across multiple sites of infrastructure is wondering what are infrastructure workers going to look like after this? How are they going to be organized? Will this sort of maybe brief moment of valorization and publicity translate into better working conditions? Or is it going to spin out as it is for so many other industries 
where they become increasingly uh, put into a precarious position, right? Increasingly marginalized, less benefits, less security. Um, so that's something, you know, I'm interested in certainly delivery workers, but also in the computer security industry, one that, you know, are seeing similar challenges. And just like uh, the Instacart shoppers and the postal workers and everyone else, you know, they're vital workers that are keeping our infrastructure alive and maintained at every moment as well. I would think right now would be the, the time that um, major institutions would be doubling down on their investment um, in having employees who they can train and retain and, and build loyalty and have them, I mean, I'm thinking of everything from college campuses to hospital systems. Right now you're talking about um, uh, people hunting bugs for Zoom uh, software or whatever it may be, but I would think all of these companies would be wanting to keep these experts close at this time. You seem to be saying something a little different. I would hope so too, but I think, you know, the financial implications of this disaster are already sort of horrifying and significant. They're going to get worse. So what's get squeezed out when budgets get, get tight is always an interesting question. I think security work, um, unfortunately, maybe is one thing that often gets squeezed out because it's benefits are easy to dismiss and discount, right? When security workers do something well, you don't notice it. Right? No one notices the failure that didn't happen, essentially. So even in this moment when there's a heightened sense of awareness of the fragility of the infrastructures we rely on, um, as budgets get tight, I'm very worried that security will be one of the first things to go. Um, you know, that I don't think is wise, but I think we can see perhaps the beginning of a pattern emerging where that might happen. Um, uh, but I hope I'm proven wrong. I feel like that also points Ryan nicely to the, uh, the different ways in which sort of this question of who bears the cost of computer security, right? So like we're all using Zoom right now and it seems all universities immediately converged on Zoom as the platform of choice, despite the fact there, there are other options out there. Um, you know, and Zoom's like security flaws have been known for a long time. There was just a report in the New York Times about how, um, you know, Zoom's poor security goes back years according to some Dropbox um, bug bounty hunters from a couple of years ago, you know, so in Zoom, you know, we know from talking to security folks is not a platform most security people use. Um, we've seen like US intelligence agencies, the Pentagon, even the Senate have been warned against using Zoom. Um, companies like Google don't allow their employees to use Zoom because of its security flaws. Um, and, you know, there's been lots of public discussions, of course, about Zoom bombing um, and Zoom's lack of end-to-end -end encryption. And then it's like, yeah, so who's going to bear the cost of Zoom's poor security? You know, to some degree, Zoom bears some sort of reputational cost. Perhaps they're going to see the number. I mean, I think I saw um, that Zoom had 10 million um, uh, calls, daily meeting calls in December and 300 million in April. So perhaps, you know, Zoom bears some cost to the poor security, but in reality, it's, it's mostly the users, right? Um, and so... I don't know. I'll push back a little, I guess. Uh, I think yeah. the last point you made, going from 10 million to 3 million, 300 million, if those are the numbers. Yeah. A lot, of the, a lot of the anxiety around Zoom is just by nature of its seemingly sudden ubiquity. So whatever yeah. technology we were going to all of a sudden gravitate to, let's assume it was going to be one thing or, you know, largely one thing, Whatever that was, we were going to find significant faults with it. Um, that's not like I don't have deep inside knowledge of what Zoom has done right or wrong. 
But I imagine that we would have seen a similar story if it was Skype or if it was- Oh, agreed, agreed, absolutely. Hangouts but, or, but, yeah, Megan, the point's a good one. Like, so who bears the costs of it, right? Yeah. Who bears yeah. the brunt of it? Is it the users, um, you know, or is it going to be pushed back on the company or some other third party? That's, to me, like the most interesting question. Well, that was, I mean, coming back to, to my first question on this, which was, I would have expected that, you know, your, your um, technology office or your security office in any company, or let's say any university, that they would have this very important intermediary role to play at this time. Um, and I wonder if you've seen that. I mean, because we're describing a very interesting sort of complicated, so you've got the you've got Zoom, you know, the provider, and then we've got the end user, but we're doing this also mediated through most of us through institutional spaces as well, if we're teaching or if we're providing telecare or whatever we may be um, providing. So what do you see in that in that front? Is it too early to, to have any kind of research or evidence of where's the hiring and where's the firing, I guess, is what I'm curious about in, in that in that sense. I, that's, I don't know. I mean, that's something I'm super curious. That seems like a very open and interesting research question to see how this shakes out yeah. and how they're going to manage or organize these security issues, not just for the platforms they're relying on, but the institutions that mediate it, Scott, as you pointed out, to yeah. me is, is like, you know, fascinating, whether it's telemed or it's work for home for corporations or probably most significant for the three of us uh, doing distance learning. Like, I'm very curious to think about how those decisions are going to get made in my home. Yeah. A lot of that seems to be right now being left in the hands of, of us, of, yeah. the, of the users. But let's stay with this for a second, because um, have you been surprised? Have you both been surprised at the closure around Zoom? Because I certainly have been surprised by that. I mean, even a few months ago, like suggesting, well, I mean, there's a bigger shift underway. I mean, I would say even six months ago, if you were the person in the group who were like, hey, let's have a Zoom meeting, people are always like, I don't know, man, let's just wait till we can get together. Like, I've been in those conversations and we're obviously shifted way past that, but I was a little surprised that Zoom, there were other options, let's say, where I teach um, and Zoom has become ubiquitous now. Any takers on that? Not surprised? I mean, I'm not surprised that it, I'm not. I have some thoughts. Megan, do you want to go first? I have some thoughts on it, I guess. I, 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 I I'm just going to keep I'm talking not. about this till they cut off our, our, <laughs> keep yeah, yeah. I, I mean, my institution was already, and my department in particular was pretty, actually pretty deeply invested in Zoom. We used it pretty regularly to stream seminars and things like that. So, um, the turn towards Zoom was not at all surprising for us, mm. but, um, but I, I agree that, that the idea that this was the platform for every educational institution was, was really surprising because there, there are some arguments. I mean, of course, we all know about network effects and things like that as ways to explain why we're on the same platform. But at the same time, there's some pretty good arguments for why you want a diversity right. of vendors out there. And even thinking about like LMSs, like there's some diversity of LMS vendors, so, um, which is probably a good thing for all of us. Uh, yeah, just echoing what Megan said, I'm not surprised because of the network effects that it coalesced around something. I'd also add what's interesting here is like the professional and personal blurring that's going on for everybody or for a lot of people now, right? Like our personal and public lives have collapsed into one another in a very real way. Mm. And so sort of similarly, as things have collapsed around or centered around Zoom, I guess, 
um, it's not surprising to me that we're using that in a similar way, right? I'm having my work meetings in the morning and I'm having drinks at night or something. Um, just because it's difficult to juggle and set up different interfaces for all these things. I already have the login. I'll just use it, right? It's easy. Right. So I, I just um, add that as well. Sort of that similar blurring between those two spaces seem to indicate or explain or help explain why Zoom's risen to such prominence. I'd be fascinated in this, in this time to hear what sort of cultural scholars who study these kind of trends are pointing. You know, if you want to be the dissenter, if you want to be, you know, what are the second or third or fourth or fifth options for people who are like, I will not use Zoom. I will use this other this other platform. It'll be kind of fascinating because that might be a moving target to this. To this I mean, Jitsi is certainly a platform that a lot of people who do research on security seem to use. So, mm. yeah. So let me remind people that we're talking to Ryan Ellis and Megan Finn on COVID calls. I want to get to a question here. So we'll shift the conversation now a little bit. Um, here's the question comes in from Meg Young. How do technology platforms mediate information flow to the public right now? Big question, I like this one. What do you see as the potential risks of large platforms and monopolies in information flows? I know it's a topic you both think about and worry about. Megan, you wanna take that first? Yeah, I mean, I guess historically we often see, again, in these moments of disaster that people are looking towards, um, you know, these media companies or um, these information infrastructures to help them make sense of what's going on. And, you know, I feel like there was this moment in the last six months where it felt like, sorry, six months before um, the stay-at-home orders, where it felt like the technology companies were being hauled in before Congress, that there was this, like, glimmer that there might be some regulation coming coming in and then um, with the COVID virus you know keeping us all many of us at home um, people having to socially distance of course this means we're now even more reliant on these platforms to mediate our personal relationships to mediate our work relationships um, and I think because these companies have generally tried to sort of play nice in terms of removing misinformation around coronavirus, or at least saying that they will, um, that they've been trying to figure out ways to share data with public health officials, um, that perhaps, um, I don't know, I, I worry that that moment where it looks like we, we might have sort of an opening to be having more public oversight of these privately owned platforms, um, that that might be closing. Um, but then on the other hand, I just got an email from a colleague today who said, you know, effectively with all the misinformation on these platforms um, and their real inability to, to sort of stem the tide of fraud and deceit. And I know Joan Donovan was on this COVID calls earlier talking about that, um, that, you know, I, it does really raise these questions around like, why are these platforms not, why, you know, why is defamation and libel legal on these platforms when it's not legal in newspapers, right? right. Um, it really sort of underlines, underlines those questions. So um, perhaps that door isn't closing. Ryan, do, do you have a, a perspective on this, this, this issue of now it's, I mean, it's a monopoly, this monopolistic practices and that maybe, and as Megan's describing it, you know, the, the door that might've been open to scrutiny in the midst of the disaster doesn't seem to be open anymore. You see it that way or concerned in some aspect of this? Maybe, I'm probably 
I'm more skeptical that we were going to see real regulation in a meaningful or positive way for accountability before this. Um, but I think Megan's point uh, is, is a good one here that, you know, they certainly are more, uh, people are less critical maybe now than they were ever before because we rely on them in new sorts of ways and that reliance is made more visible and more pronounced, I, I suppose. But I also say, you know, monoculture is worrisome, right? The scale, we want them to moderate disinformation, these things. And there's other folks I know you've had on, I mentioned Joan as well. But, you know, the question of scale, that it's going to be very hard, no matter what they do, to act in ways that are accountable or even uh, beneficial to the public. So if you can't solve that problem, right, if it is a question of one or two or three platforms that are mediating significant aspects of our information diet, it's going to be unpalatable no matter what we do in some ways. So if we can't get around that, that's troubling. I'd also say one thing that's interesting, I mean, we're talking, you know, I'm pretty interested in like the economic effects of COVID and like the wholesale decimation of the ad market. Mm -hmm. um, while Facebook and Google and others are pretty well insulated from that because of their size and the markets they operate in. But for like local journalism or even national journalism, it's devastating, right? So if you're worried about diverse voices, um, the fact that we have ad supported media which was already on life support, I don't know how they survived this. And I don't have a good answer, but it makes me incredibly worried. Can we just, I just wanna stay with that for a second to make sure that that's, that that's clear. So you're saying that, that in this moment because of the economic downturn that, I mean, what percentage of daily newspapers are, is supported by ad, I mean, is supported by ad revenue, right? So, I mean, yeah. Are we talking about most local news right now is against the ropes financially? I mean, I think so, right? I mean, yeah. ad-supported media is in a desperate situation. Um, the consumption changes, right? People aren't advertising because people aren't buying things generally. Hmm. And so the loss of that revenue, which it looks like is not going to come back for a very long time, I don't know how they're going to weather it and how they're going to survive it. Megan, what, do you, what are your thoughts on that? Are you, are you, is that something I, you worry about? Yes, yes. Oh, I, and we're already, I mean, we're already seeing the results of some of that here in Seattle. I know The Stranger, which is a really sort of important cultural paper here, um, you know, they, they sort of said, we can't survive this. They've had to lay people off. And I, I actually should check what their status is right now. Um, but particularly these really small local dailies that even serve like sub-communities of, you know, cities or towns, um, which are almost entirely reliant on small local businesses who have really had to struggle through or um, if, in, if they've been able to survive the coronavirus, it's, it's quite terrifying. Um, I think particularly when we think about, you know, how we understand what's going on locally, um, right, this disaster, if we've learned anything, it's that this has been locally managed in very unique ways um, within the United States. And so it sort of really underscores this has not been a centrally managed disaster. There's differences from town to town, from county to county, from state to state. And you really want those reporters who are on the ground who actually know the public officials there, who know the public health officials um, to be able to help the public figure out what's going on. Um, and so it seems, yeah, devastating. It's terrifying. I wrestle with this question myself because at the same time, aren't we at a moment when social media um, can, could, can uh, allow and promote a much wider uh, flourishing of information sharing? Maybe groups who, I mean, I'm thinking of some of your 
work, Megan, about, you know, the way that um, after earthquake, sort of the need for local, intensely local media sometimes, I mean, at times before social media existed. Now that, that need can be met, right, with Facebook groups, with uh, people who have uh, Twitter following, people who are doing even things like these, you know, webinars, you know, sort of stand-up communication platforms that may come and go in this in this time, do you have any hope for those kind of things or it all gets, it's underneath the, the shadow of Facebook, Twitter, the big corporate giants and they ultimately it, it can't, it can't flourish in a meaningful way. Maybe it's a false choice, but I'm curious about. Yeah, I guess I'm thinking about the dissertation work of a UW student named Dharma Daly, who's looked at a local landslide in Washington state and Oso County. And she looked a lot at the social media interactions and found that it was most often these really localized media accounts mm. that were getting retweeted, um, mm -hmm. which, you know, it's obviously hard to say this is a definitive signal, but maybe signals that those are some of the most useful um, accounts of what's going on. So, um, so yeah, I, th I think that it's pretty hard to imagine. I think local media is part of that social media ecology and often, and I, I don't have data at my fingertips, but I know researchers in Queenland University of Technology, like Jean Burgess and Axel Bruns find the same thing over there. Um, so I think that um, it's tempting to sort of say, now that we have these platforms, we're all gonna be okay. But in fact, these local media organization professionals um, are quite are, are better right at telling right. stories about what's going on and they're better at understanding the local context it's it's a profession um so yeah that would yeah that's sort of my my general thinking on that yeah and twitter doesn't pay them no I mean, right yeah yeah I mean, i'm thinking of reporters i had on last week who report for the beaumont enterprise in jefferson county texas which is petrochemical capital of america they have no environmental reporters there. I mean, these are great reporters who cover everything. Yeah. You know, if this was in, in New Jersey or New York, they would, there would be 50 environmental reporters on that beat. And that one little newspaper basically covers all of those environmental issues. And I think it's exactly what you described that when they, um, they get the megaphone of, of Twitter, maybe they use Facebook as well. That's extra work for them and it doesn't pay, right. it doesn't pay their salary. That's right. I guess yeah. I'm still, I still find sort of finding in, the, in, this, in this moment also, you know, thinking about history and thinking about, you know, some of the artifacts that come down to us through history about kinds of communication that, em, that are emergent in disaster. Um, and then, you know, maybe they don't solidify in, in some way, you know, newsletters, meetings, you know, some of the even um, you know, short-lived things that might look like a newspaper, but were basically there to serve at a particular time and place. Sometimes this happens during wars too. I guess I'm still hopeful that social media can work in that way. And at the same time, I, I'm, I'm seeing Donald Trump as usual dominating the, the Twitter sphere. I mean, one exciting, so, you know, being uh, somebody who's really interested in data infrastructures and how the data infrastructures that we've been like those data infrastructures that have allowed us to sort of see and make sense of what's going on that tell us, you know, aggregate all these statistics and put together these um, models that are assisting policymakers. Um, you know, and Twitter is clearly, uh, there's a lot of conversation amongst people who are um, 
sort of collating these lists of data sets um, that are available online from you know different health public health offices or or um, or even um, data sets of poli of policies. There's like data sets of national policies um, around around coronavirus and. You know, there's there's people collating those lists and putting them, sharing them via Twitter. So there's, I do think there's like a lot of really exciting um, ways that people are using these platforms to make sense of what's going on. Um, but are they the same as journalism? Mm -hmm. Right, probably not. Um, it looks pretty different to, to me, at least. I don't know how you see it, Ryan. No, I completely agree. I mean, I think the hunger for news and information, especially locally relevant news, is certainly there, and it's going to be satisfied. The question, um, which I have a very negative take on, is will it be satisfied by professional journalists or not? I think the answer to that is probably not. And now your mileage might vary, but there's something very worrisome if professional journalism as an enterprise doesn't survive this, like the crashing of the ad market. Um, you know, I'm, that makes me incredibly nervous and incredibly worried because I don't think those things can be replicated in a useful sort of way at scale, um, even with, you know, well-meaning and expert folks congregating on social media. There's lots to offer there and it provides things that professional media never have been able to provide, certainly. But I'm worried about what's going to fill the void if professional journalists go away. Something will fill it. I think that, that much is clear, but I worry about what it might look like. And that caution to me is is very well placed and and even this morning I was reading a a blog post affiliated with a major um, magazine and the blog post had taken the the blogger had taken and this is a major magazine the blogger had taken upon himself to interview local physicians about whether or not it would be safe to return to the stadium for football games in the fall. And the conclusion was, uh, absolutely, it'll be totally safe because he interviewed three doctors who all agreed with each other. Okay, I mean, yeah, interesting to read. Um, not journalism, not providing the public service that we need to tell both sides of, of a story or do fact checking and get that, you know, and, and so here we had, um, so then this comes into this broad, and the way we got into all of this is, you know, without those kind of infrastructures of truth, um, fact checking, um, providing, you know, balance, we end up with situations where weird things, uh, conspiracies or just wrong information end up in the, in the ecosystem, right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah and, you know, I, I, at some level, you know, you can't blame folks who are hungry for information, right? They're going to seek out what is there. And if it's not yeah. there, if good information isn't to be found, they're going to wind up with what they wind up with. So, you know, it's very, very concerning. Yeah. I want to, we are almost up on time. I just want to um, see if we can get to another question. I can see already that this is, you're a pair of guests. I'm going to have to have to, I'm going to want to have back and have to have back as we follow what's happening over the next few months. But Scott, I'm very available. I'm very, very <laughs> available. Good. I, I want to talk to you just so I can continue to see your amazing basement back there. I yeah. just noticed, is that the Swedish chef in the background there, Ron? Indeed it is. This is our, uh, you know, kid playroom now hastily reconvened as a um, office space. So yes, that is definitely the Swedish chef. I'm okay. so happy to, I'm so happy, right? That's amazing. Um, <laughs> one of the things that, um, that you, both write about and think about in different ways is sense making in disaster. And Megan, I know, you know, from your own work and reading it, it's just about, you know, sort of like really 
important questions like um, how many people died and what are their names? I mean, yeah. you know, these kinds of questions that, as you write about in your work, lead people to barge into a telegraph office, you know, I mean, to this really important um, function and that telegraphy um, serves this function to help people see to see the disaster, who couldn't be there, couldn't feel it, couldn't sense it. And then just a moment ago, you were both talking about these really complex assemblies of data infrastructures. I'm thinking of the Johns Hopkins coronavirus, um, you know, what I, what I always read from at the beginning of the COVID calls. And, and this sort of range of skills that go into the uh, skill and infrastructures that are necessary to allow us to visualize actually what's happening. And this pandemic, is a weird kind of disaster, terrible and weird because as I read in the obituary, it's been so private, it's been so hidden, except for the people who are not hidden from it. I don't know, I, I, don't even, I can't I have a hard time even formulating a good question here, but just maybe something you could riff off here at the end a little bit, you know, about these technologies of seeing disaster and the way information infrastructure helps us see it how are you yeah. thinking about that right now? How, what kind of new things, or new assemblages are you seeing right now? Where do we find creativity? How do we enable more of that right now? That's to me exciting and important because it's hard to see coronavirus. The numbers don't do it justice. The, the maps don't seem to do it justice. We need to see it better, but I don't know how. Yeah, I mean, and I was thinking about this as we're talking about the media as well, that this is, it's, sort of weird because we, you know, we oftentimes are very critical of the media and disasters because they sort of parachute in and show us the, the quote unquote disaster porn, right? These yeah. sort of horrific images. And they just, you know, reporters haven't really been in the hospitals, right? They haven't been because of the social distancing rules and safety and whatnot, but there's something so, um, so odd about that in, in terms, and I, you know, I feel like they're sort of trying to fill in these stories in really interesting ways without sort of really bearing witness to the actual suffering and the actual, you know, a lot of this work in the hospitals, in people's homes. Um, you know, so I'm, I'm thinking about these data infrastructures include like, you know, they include the nurses and the doctors who decide who gets tested, right? Um, they include the nurses and doctors who are doing the testing. Um, this incredible testing apparatus that we've all been learning about over the last couple months, the various mm -hmm. entities that collect and collate this data, the people who are working with the sick COVID patients and like recording their deaths, um, you know, the public health experts, epidemiologists, the virologists, the data managers who collect and analyze this data, the media and other experts who are, you know, writing articles, getting on Twitter and telling us how to think about this stuff. They're doing that translational work that helps mm -hmm. us like lay publics make sense of what's happening. Um, and, but at the same time, like, you know, and I've been thinking a lot about this um, discussion that people are having, like Trump can't ignore reality, this is happening. Right. And, but then when you describe this data infrastructure, you're like, oh, but there's so many fragile little pieces in here. And like, Trump may not be able to ignore this reality, but he sure can just, it right by underfunding different pieces of it. Mm. There was just a report from NBC last week where reporters got a hold of one of the coronavirus task force reports that reported a bunch of new hotspots, and those hadn't come up in any of the briefings, right? And, and public health experts in those areas hadn't seen 
those numbers. Um, and it's sort of easy to see, you know, that it's easy to sort of say that, you know, the pandemic is going to out the truth, but there's so many ways that it, it, that, you know, Trump has marginalized people who are undocumented. Are these people going to go and look for medical help, right? Are we going to, are they going to go get tested, right? Um, these are, you know, are, uh, are the numbers we see of cases or deaths really reflective of all people in the United States? Probably not. We know some states aren't publishing any demographic data, for example, about coronavirus victims. And early analysis shows that the corona cases are being born disproportionately by low-income communities and other marginalized communities. And this is, of course, a long finding of disaster researchers. Um, so yeah, so the, you know, I, I suspect, I'm sure you do too, that there's uh, many people who are undocumented, many people who are marginalized who are being excluded from forms of accounting that are giving us these numbers. And I think, um, you know, as we all know, it's going to take years. Like a bunch of these questions we've been asking during this call, it's just going to take years for us to figure out. And hopefully, historians are um, around and. Um, thinking about archiving some of this data as it comes up, right? Um, um, and I know a lot of really great archivists that are working right now to do that work. But anyway, this is a long, this is a story that's gonna take a really long time to tell. Ryan, I just wanna get a, a final word from you on that, because I mean, the way Megan's describing, it's like, it's like civic data infrastructure that we just sort of assume we can get like an honest and accurate account of the number of people who are dead in a particular state in a nursing home. And we don't seem to be able to. I find that terrifying. It is terrifying, right? The fragility of that infrastructure and just to lay on top of it again, the, the point you're making earlier, Scott and Megan as well, it's a hard story to cover and you know there is no unmediated disasters and so this idea that the disaster will always speak for itself or might even speak for itself in this case we of course are reminded that's never really the case and so you know i'm i'm taking to um something that you know really caught my attention was the protest against the stay-at-home orders right that have sprung up and by every metric there the stay-at-home orders are incredibly popular right people want to stay home and be safe um they support the governors that have enacted these orders in the name of public safety. But that's not an easy story to cover, right? The consensus around staying at home. But if you get a small group of people who want to protest not wearing masks and show up, that's an easy story to cover, right? That's an easy way to frame it. That's a somewhat easy story to put out there. And so I know Megan, this is a point you've made today and earlier as well, reminding us that this idea that the truth is just going to sort of emerge is not only naive, but it's really dangerous, right? You have to focus on the ways in which um, mediation occurs, the institutions and the powerful actors through which these narratives get produced, and most importantly, what stories don't get told. So I, you know, this is completely on my radar and something I also very much worry about. The disaster will not speak for itself. That's, that's such a, a powerful rendering that you both gave to this, to this problem. And I want to remind people you've been listening to COVID calls tomorrow We'll be speaking with New York Times contributing writer Maggie Jones about her article, How Do You Maintain Dignity for the Dead in a Pandemic? And if you haven't looked at that article, really recommend everybody take a look at that. COVID Calls is Monday through Friday every week at 5 p.m. Eastern Time. Ryan Ellis and Megan Finn, great discussion. I learned a lot from you. Thank you so much for making this hour. Thank you so much. It was great speaking with both of you. It was fun. Thanks. Stay healthy, everyone. We'll see you tomorrow at 5 o'clock.